You're listening to We've Got Issues, a conversation with diverse thought leaders across sectors and the media, exploring hot topics and current trends in communications. This podcast is produced by Issues Management Group, an integrated strategic communications, public affairs, and digital firm guiding clients through complex, highly leveraged situations. This world is complicated. It's no surprise. We've got issues. Hi, everyone. I'm Reva Chessis. And I'm TJ Winnick. And welcome to We've Got Issues. TJ, you're a Patriots fan, right? Who isn't, Reva? Okay, good, because I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will recognize his voice and know who he is immediately because this is Titletown, and we're speaking to two-time Super Bowl champion with the New England Patriots, Christian Fourier, and Forrest Christian is well-known for his impressive career as a tight end. He's also beloved in his role as co-host of Maloney, Fourier, and Mego, which airs on WEEI Monday through Friday from 2 to 6 p.m., As a firm, we recently had the privilege of working with Christian in the lead up to his third 25-hour crusade for a cure, which took place on November 16th and 17th and raised more than $250,000 for the American Diabetes Association in support of their mission to prevent and cure diabetes. We'll get into all that, but first, Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for uh, having me on. I've been looking forward to it. Christian, this, of course, is a podcast in which we discuss all things communications. And so to start off, we think our listeners would be interested. Were you always a big talker, even as a kid? Did you you ever have any formal public speaking classes? Were you from a big family and had to be loud to be heard? Where does it all start for you? I feel like this is my, okay, so yes to all of the above. It's so funny. So yes, I'm the youngest of four. And, you know, in order to get any sort of like airtime in my family, especially during dinner time, you needed to be aggressive and you needed to find your openings. Right. It, it just it, very loud, boisterous family. Like, that's just me being honest. If you ask anyone who knows me, if my brother walked in the room, if my dad walked in the room, like you would you would know who was coming in. And it's so funny that you mentioned like as a kid. So I just found an old report card from when I was in fifth grade and my teacher was a former like uh, like you know general in the army, and he was like, uh, and he ended up being our teacher in fifth grade. I went to a Catholic school, and every semester, every quarter, I would give my report card, and there would be a comment section right there, uh, <laughs> and then every single one, every four four comments uh, out of the year all dealt with me talking too much. Christian is still talking. <laughs> Christian won't stop talking to the girls. I've tried. I've asked Christian. He's a pleasure in class, but he will not stop talking. Christian is still talking. So to answer your question, yes. You know, for us, we can definitely see how there's a through line with communication between your roles on and off the field. But we're curious to learn a little bit more from you about, you know, moving into your post-football career what the transition to radio was like and what you enjoy the most about working in radio. So for me, I knew that I always wanted to get into something like this, whether it be TV and radio was like really the last thing on my mind. Uh, the number one thing on my mind was be on TV, you know, and just pursue 
that angle, whether it be really like is something as silly as like Entertainment Tonight. I auditioned for them when I while I was still playing because I was I knew when I finished I wanted to be ahead of the curve. I didn't want to start building relationships when I was done. I wanted to start building relationship as I was playing. So when I was coming to the end, I would already have a Rolodex of people who I could call. I would already have like an on air resume. So I was building my career ever since I got into the league. I was thinking about it and I played 13 years. So it was, I had a long list of people that I could reach out to. The radio thing for me almost happened almost by chance because I was with ESPN. ESPN didn't pick up my contract and then I worked for CBS, but at a very small capacity. It wasn't a lot of money. It wasn't a lot of airtime. And then WEEI was going through some changes. And I just, I recognized there was a need there. So, you know, I don't cover all sports. So I was very apprehensive about reaching out to them because I, I never watched hockey. I didn't watch baseball. And I was every now and then watch basketball and they cover all the sports exclusively. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go ask them and I'm just going to go get that job. I'm just going to tell them that I want this job. And uh, and that's really how that started. I honestly, God said I was looking for an opening. I was looking for an opportunity and identified it. And then I just went and got it. Like, really, that's about as clean as I can make it. And that's what I've done my entire life. If I know I want something, I'm realistic about what I'm capable of doing. So I identify things that are realistic for me. And then once I saw the opening, I made the ask and then I fought for the job. I had to convince them that this was a good deal for them. It's <laughs> basically what I did. And it's worked out. Listen, I've been there forever. I love it. We've had a lot of highs and lows. Starting to have back to have some highs now. So I'm really appreciative of the, of the job and the opportunity. It's all about timing, right? I mean, when you were signed by the Patriots, they were a successful team, but they needed a tight end. Yeah. And, and I did not want to come to New England. I was born and raised in L.A. I've been a West Coast guy my, my whole life. The only thing I knew about Boston was the stupid things that I read in my textbooks, which were so old and antiquated. They were so old. It was just surface level stuff. Plymouth Rock, you know, Revolution, Paul Revere, all that stuff that you would read. And then coming to Boston was like the last thing I wanted to do. But you're right. The opportunity and the timing was there. And the funny thing is I almost signed with Tampa at the time. And then I instead I signed with the the Patriots and that same year, the Tampa Bay Bucks won the Super Bowl. So I was like, this sucks. I made a mistake. What a terrible, terrible idea. But then we won back to back years. So it all ended up working out. But you're right about the timing. Like and you don't know it in real time. You just feel like you're just, you know, making the best of a situation that you normally you wouldn't do. My friends to this day cannot believe that I'm still on the East Coast. I am West Coast to the core. I am flip flops. I am board shorts. And here I tried to do it. And my wife yells at me <laughs> because she, she was born and raised here. She's like, people don't do that here. And she's like, you're 50. I was like, all right. It's just not it's never going to get out of my system. So I knew, Christian, you and I were kindred spirits because we do share one thing in common. We both didn't have our contracts renewed by ESPN. I ah. was uh, a production assistant back in the 90s. You and I are of the same vintage. And uh, I enjoyed my time in Bristol, though. It was fun. Back in the 90s, that was a that was almost like a heyday with talent there. And I bet you we know a lot of the same people because um, a lot of those people that worked in Bristol were a lot of like Boston, New England natives. Right. Yep. And, you know, they all kind of either freelance or they commute it down to Bristol and they would come back up and live here. You know, I'm I'm curious, 
you've always been a gregarious, clearly an outgoing. No, but, you know, there are many athletes that are not when it comes to providing, you know, a great soundbite uh, coaches, you know, as well. I'm thinking about former Boston athletes and coaches like Nomar Garcia-Parr, for instance, to a lesser extent, Bill Parcells, because he could be playful with the media. And then those same individuals end up becoming media members themselves. What do you think is up with that? Can you, can you give us a bit of a perspective about the relationship athletes have with the media? Do some view it as adversarial or you know fake news, if you will? Okay, so being in the media here locally, there's a couple cities that are similar, in my opinion. I feel like New York is similar to Boston. Philly is similar to Boston. Dallas, to a lesser extent, maybe Chicago. But the the holy trinity of like, you know, you got to prove it to us, like New York, Philly, and Boston. My advice to anyone, any player, is just to be yourself. Like, that is it. If you're quiet, you're quiet. And, you know, if you're loud, be loud. You have to be comfortable being yourself. The guys that get caught up in, you know, the criticism from the media are the guys that try to be somebody that they're not. That is 100% truth. I've seen it so many times. If you're authentic, like David Price, there's an aspect of David Price that I respect. He doesn't care. He is. This is who he is. He will be snarky. He will be condescending. Uh, he will be honest. But... To his credit, that's who he is. So as much as I'll criticize and rip him, I respect him for just not caring what people think. And that goes the same with like a guy like Nomar Garcia Pair that goes for for anybody in the media locally. Because I think here, a lot of guys, they just, there's just still this hardcore, you know, boots on the ground, you know, blue collar mentality where, you know, we're not going to support you if we don't believe you're being authentic. I feel like that's like, because if, if you mess up, say you messed up. John Farrell was an example of that. I thought, I don't think, I didn't think he could handle it. Alex Kaur is, is an example of someone who handles it perfectly, perfectly. Like he's a great, Brad Stevens used to be like that. Like when he was the coach of the Celtics, you know, Bruce Cassidy, like was a great sound bite, but they, they the players ended up running him out of town, you know, because of just how he, like his personality. Bill is interesting because, you know, I know Bill is is uh, a totally different way as a player. And I know him another way as a, a guy that used to interview him. I hated interviewing him. I despised it. It just it's like it was like the most uncomfortable, like, you know, 15 minutes of, of my day every Monday because I just it was just he wouldn't give me anything. He was very protective and, you know, sometimes condescending and which made me really angry. I know, you know, I know what's going on, but I'm working in the media. So I have to do my job, just like your whole thing, do your job. So, but yeah, I think the key, just be yourself. You'll be fine. You know, it, it sounds like it's common sense, but you're hundred percent right. And people really do. I think the idea of having a conversation with media, they can get in their head. They can totally, you know, turn it into something that it doesn't have to be like that. And I think that that is definitely the strongest advice and that leads into my next question, which is kind of going into the PR weeds for a minute, which is what kind of media training did you receive as a professional athlete? You know, did you find it helpful? Did you get any sort of media training? Zero, zero media training. I mean, every now and then maybe like somebody would say something, but no, zero, like zero. I didn't get, I, I, there's a lot. Most guys don't get media training maybe they get it now, but even if they do, it's maybe, I think at the rookie symposium, um, the, they have to have for incoming football players, they would have like a whole three day seminar 
and they'd have guest speakers. And I think talking to the media was one of the aspects that they went over. But once you leave, you're on your own. You know, that's interesting, though, because especially for the Patriots and, and uh, Belichick's way of doing things, you would think that, you know, you and, and you know, your fellow uh, teammates would be coached up on how not to say anything. You know, the Patriots players have this really uncanny way of sort of following Bill in, in that respect, that they don't give up anything, that they give pretty straightforward answers. Rarely is are there sort of, you know, any juicy tidbits that, you know, the media could run with. Yeah, it's funny you say that because, you know, when I was a free agent, I came in, no one said anything to me. But when I said something wrong, I got called into the principal's office right away. So that was, you know, interesting. And it's funny with the rookies, if you look at the rookies, we did a whole bit on this on the radio. When you look, when you listen to the rookies before they, like while they're in the draft, like uh, right before, right after they get drafted, and then when they meet the media, it's two different personalities. They're they're honest, they're talking, they're, they're laughing. And then when they talk with the media after, like a day after they sign with the Patriots, they're so robotic and so just careful. It, some guys, like we asked this one guy, say, what's your best attribute as a cornerback? He's like, uh, you know, I, he basically wouldn't even say, I don't even know if he knew he played football. It's like, it's like they, they were lobotomized, you know, when they came in and they just zero, zero, zero information. Cause I think they're just scared shitless about the ramifications from bill. I do think he talks to them, you know, when they first get there and the older guys that are free agents, you know, they usually recruit guys that are smart anyways, it won't cause a problem. So they protect themselves that they insulate themselves from those issues. It's interesting. I think we want to pivot now to talking about 2019, when on top of all your other responsibilities, you took on a new role, and that's as an advocate and fundraiser for diabetes research with the launch of Christian Fourier's 25-hour crusade for a cure. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned over the past few years of, of working on this event and maybe what stood out to you about this year's event, perhaps compared to previous years? Well, in the beginning, we just had an idea uh, and the name was just 25 for 25. We had a modest goal of $25,000. That's all we wanted to raise. And I figured $1,000 an hour, we could do that. We didn't have a lot of corporate sponsorships. It was just a lot of like elbow grease, begging and pleading, you know, and I figured 25 hours is a long time. And then this, and then COVID hit and the second year we did it, we literally just threw it together. It was just like, well, you just do it, you know? And it was hectic and I, I was so disappointed. We raised more money, but it just seemed like real, just clunky and no direction. And nobody really cared, you know, is what I felt like. When you guys, when issues management, joined on, it almost was like an adult entered the room and said, you've been doing it wrong. Not that, that we weren't doing a good job, but I felt like we were just really leaving a lot of meat on the bone, like a lot of meat on the bone. I guess it was like, like what the realization that, you know, we were doing good work. I just don't think we were efficient. I also didn't realize like what an unbelievably brilliant, smart, you know, clever group of people that was, that, that was working there. Like, it was just a whole new world, right? It was just like, wow, we are underachieving, I think is what I really realized. Like we are underachieving. We need to reassess. Well, I need to reassess. I need to figure out and how to take advantage of the new opportunities that issues management is bringing us. Because I looked at other you know, events and I was like, we sh why are we doing that? No, we should be there. Like we're better. We're smarter. We have more energy. Our idea is better. 
why aren't we hitting those like a $1 million mark? Like we should be hitting that. And I think like, because to be honest with you, I was doing a lot of the work. Um, We had some, a lot of people like working and they were all working really hard, but there's a level of uh, expertise that issues management brings that we just weren't doing, you know, and that streamlined us, that focused us on bigger opportunities And it also kind of opened up doors to corporate sponsorships that we never would have gotten into. And for me, that was like like one of the bigger differences is that just the amount of um, introductions that we got, because I can't call up Shields and say, hey, I have an idea like they're not going to answer me. So but with you guys with issues, it was um, it was pretty easy, at least from our standpoint, to get those uh, introductions. Well, I'm I'm really glad that you feel that way. And we're obviously really excited that we're going to continue to work together and already be thinking ahead for next year. I want to just back up for one second. Most of our listeners hopefully already know and recognize this, but for anyone who does it, for my family listening in Israel over there, you know, the reason that you started the crusade for a cure was because your son was diagnosed with diabetes in 2019. That's kind of what led to everything. And so my question for you, and this will be our last question, is... What is the number one thing you want people to know about diabetes that they might not know? And also as a parent, you know, what would you want other parents of children with diabetes in particular to know? Well, I think for parents, I think it's um, I, when you're when your kids with a, a diabetic, it, I do feel like there needs to be like a support group, like it like it's a, it's a different way of life with 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 if you're a parent with kids with diabetics. So that to me is important that people know how challenging it is for the kids and how challenging it is for the parents and the stress that is involved and how um, their insecurities are kind of affected by this. Cause I think that's a real thing, but ultimately I guess that the other aspect is that insulin affordability was a big thing for me, you know, to offset those costs because the price and the cost is so expensive. And also in the last three years, I've learned so much. Like when Kayla was first diagnosed, I thought it was, you know, a lifelong issue, you know, dealing with some of the sponsors and the companies that we're working with, I don't think it is anymore. I think there's, I think a cure is, is not just some pie in the sky dream. I think it's a reality. And I tell my son that all the time. He doesn't want to hear it. And I said, like, when he comes back, I'm like, I I want to take you to these companies. I'm going to put your feet on the ground floor where all these groundbreaking discoveries are happening. It really is amazing what they're doing in this field. And, you know, from beginning to end. So I think that if you are, um, you know, a type one diabetic, that there's a, there's a legit cure for it. And if you're a type two diabetic, it's preventable. And then you can change it. Like if you are diagnosed as type type two, you can alter the effects just by changing your lifestyle, you know, and deal with it in a more better way. I just don't, a lot of people just don't understand like uh, who's at risk and why they would be at risk. I meet people all the time now that say they're, that tell me they're a diabetic all the time. And, but you would never know just walking by them in the street. You would never have a clue unless you actually, at least unless they told you or they shared their story with you. Does it impact your son's day-to-day life right now? Well, yeah. I mean, he had to manage his life differently. He had to be more disciplined than the average kid. Like he plays football, he studies, he's eating like crazy, trying to keep weight on. So like it, for him, it's a real, real grind, you know, but modern technology has made it easier. Like, can you imagine having diabetes like 40 years ago, like 20 years ago? Like, holy crap. If you're a kid, if you're an infant, oh, I can't even, I can't even imagine. I would never sleep. Now the technology has gotten so much better like the different devices that you can use to help you manage it, predict when something is going to happen is such an unbelievable asset. He's so different than me. He's just laid back, chill, quiet. You know, he, he hates that he has it. 
<laughs> he has to deal with it, but you know, he manages it. That's great. It sounds like he's, he's doing really well. And um, just hard to believe that you have a member of your family who is uh, quiet and reserved. I, I didn't think that was in your the only uh, one your bloodline. He's, he's the only one His and funny thing is he's his new head coach at Colorado is Deion Sanders, who is loud and very, wow. you know, he's, he's, you know, very like, unbelievable personality. And, and Caleb is just the opposite. He's just, he's just, and he's got a lot of sisters and, you know, so good luck getting a word in with those guys. They, they usually speak for him and he doesn't have a choice. Well, we really appreciate you uh, spending some time with us today and talking about both your personal life and uh, professional and and your pursuits, um, Crusade for a Cure. And we wish you all the best. Yeah, I think uh, it's good to, good to end on a hopeful note with talking about progress and, and things that are happening in the field. So thank you. Thank you again. Oh, yeah. yeah, we're, we're going to kick its ass, basically. And I appreciate all your help. And so this has been fun telling the story and, you know, bringing more, you know, eyeballs onto the situation is just, I really like it. And thank you for having me on too. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners out there for tuning into We've Got Issues. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss out on future conversations. And if you've enjoyed this conversation or previous episodes, let us know by leaving a review, following us on social media, issues underscore group on Instagram and at issues underscore group on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. We will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.